0: that you would inhabit our praises. Would you be with our minds as we hear what Doug has to say to us today, that your spirit would speak, would speak strongly with your hand, Lord. Lord, we ask that you bless the offering. We bless those that have given and brought into the storehouse, Lord. Lord, continue the work of this church. In your powerful name, amen.
1: First John chapter 1, verse 5 reads, This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This passage here says, "God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all." And then we're invited: Do we want to live in the light or in the dark? And when I say living in the dark, I don't mean just like living in sin or something. Although I guess it would it would include that. I guess for sure it would. Um, but living in the dark would also include pretending, faking, hiding, posing, things like you know, pretending that our spiritual performance is really stellar that we have it all together, that we've got all the right answers, that we are super Christians. Um, Doing that, friends, that's living in the darkness. It's wearing a mask, and when we wear a mask, we hide our true faces, and we live in the dark. This week is our second week in our series of messages, our all-church study of John Lynch's book, The Cure. Um, By the way, Wednesday nights, we meet here at the church, and we break into small groups for Discussion and a little more teaching on what it means to grow, go deeper in living as a community of grace a grace and love for everyone for ourselves and others um, And last week we looked at this Choice in our first week on the series this this choice of how we approach our Christian life and and we use this metaphor of two different roads We can approach God one road is through the road of what we call pleasing God And this pleasing God road is one where we put on the lens of religion it's all about performing and impressing and striving. Our primary motive in that pleasing God religious mode is to achieve so that we can hopefully, we're hoping, we're wanting to, please God. And that's a common approach to living the Christian life. But the end result of that is, is it's just self-effort, and so it's devoid of grace. It's, it's devoid of dependence on God, so really it's not even faith when we live in that realm. But we can live that way. Or the other path we we labeled trusting God. This, this path where we trust God. Do we trust him? W- will we trust who he says that we are? And will we actually trust his grace, his, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness? Will we trust that he is powerful enough to work in us? That he's the one that will work in us. Will we trust him? And will we accept that that, that he will never leave us? Will we trust that? Instead of depending on this religious performance road, thinking that I can finally make myself acceptable to God, can we dare to trust God instead and live in his grace, which is living in the light of what is real and true? And presented those two options like, it it seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, who wouldn't opt for the road of love and grace with God? Uh, But the problem, or one of the problems, is it seems like we're almost hopelessly pulled toward accomplishment and achieving, striving and performing to get our needs met from our good performance, but it never really quite works, does it?
0: Curtain closes and the crowd cheers, but all you can think about is that note you didn't quite hit or that line you forgot. And you can only imagine what the critics will say, and the words the crowd will murmur on their drive home. Or you've walked down the hall after the big promotion. The long, hard hours have led to this handshake, but the success doesn't shake the void you feel won't be filled, and you start again in search of that thing your soul is missing. Or when you thought you'd have different news for parents about to be grand, but you must tell your mom that you miscarried again, and starting to feel like maybe you're the life that's lost, and you're beginning to question if it's you who's to blame. And you fought back tears so you could make it to Mom's minivan where she gave you the cupcake intending to celebrate but all you wanted to do was forget the day you didn't make the team or get voted class president or homecoming queen. Was it the campaign you ran? Or did they just not like you? Or down the courtroom hall that feels lifetimes away from the aisle where you first said the we do's, but he didn't? And was it you or him that first gave up on this thing? Or was it just the inevitable ending from the beginning that you never saw coming? Or was it on that road that you drive every day, but that uh, you forget to look, and you regret every second that time stood still and any closer and she might have been killed. And somehow you start to wonder and believe you might be a failure. These paths you've been walking begin to feel like your identity, and you start to believe that maybe there's something uniquely disqualifying about you. Something unfixable, maybe defective possibly, broken probably, unlovable, surely, not good enough, definitely. Maybe you just don't deserve this. What if there was a different path? A path that felt like a home you once belonged to. A home where you don't have to hide the, oh, I'd rather not talk about that's. A place where you are no longer defined by the, if I could only measure up to's. What if there was a path defined by the eyes of our creator? Seeing with delight the one he created, a father who has no records of your past offenses or graph charts of how often you pray, where there's no secret agenda, no trap door, where you are not defined by self-effort, a place where you learn to trust God and trust others and allow them to love you, what if there was a place so safe you could share the worst parts of you and you would be loved more in the telling of it What if you were welcomed home with the strength of a warm hug as you were picked up and wrapped close and told, This is home. My daughter, my son, come home.
1: What if there was a place, I love that line, what if there was a place so safe that the worst about me could be known, and I found that I was loved more and not less in the telling of it? That quote from True Face is is really powerful, but can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, what if we didn't have to hide, or feel like we had to try to impress other people? And what if people actually knew the real me, even my worst struggles, And didn't condemn me or pressure me, but instead stood with me, took me to Jesus as he gradually brought me healing and freedom, a place where people were patient with me as I matured. I mean, what if? I mean, wait, no, no, what will happen when a church becomes a place that welcomes people as they are, as they are imperfect and authentic and real? Now, we, we have that on our marquee out front, right? No perfect people allowed. And I actually heard somebody a couple summers ago before I came to Hope who, they were bugged by that phrase. This is a Christian person, very bugged by this no perfect people sign that we have out front. And, you know, sometimes some people, usually kind of the uptight religious folks, um, they're a- offended. They're kind of like, what? No perfect people? Well, then how are you going to get people to stop sinning? I mean, is this church just winking winking at people's sin? I mean, if we, don't, if we don't use guilt and pressure and fear of hell and judgment, how are people going to ever shape up and become good Christians? As if that's the ultimate goal, right? <laughs> um, and and Really, it, makes, it breaks my heart because I'm kind of sad for those folks because those religious performers, I can promise you the truth behind their story is that somewhere in their story, they're running from their own shame and brokenness. Like they're trying to prove to themselves and supposedly God that they are serious about their faith. They strive, they perform, imagining that, that, that they one day, maybe they'll be able to please God, impress him, impress other people. And the sad truth is it's all driven by fear. And really, it's a mask. They're wearing a mask. It's a religious pose. In fact, you know, I kind of think about this a little more. And actually, you know what will happen when the people of God trust each other and trust God enough to be honest about the hard stuff of life, even the, the stuff that would normally trigger shame, even the, even the hard sins to talk about, what would really happen is in that environment of grace, we could step into the light, because God is light in him. There is no darkness. We could step into the light. We could come out of hiding. When we come out of hiding, we'd begin to heal. We'd actually, actually, by stepping into the light, we'd get freer of all the stuff that keeps us struggling in darkness and in hiding. And ironically, even though this isn't isn't the goal, we'd actually sin less, because the, the garbage that just sucks us in again and again, that stuff would start getting healed because in the light, according to that first John passage we read, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We are cleansed and made free. But when we don't do that, when we lean into that moralistic religion side, when we are striving after that, we're spending all of our energy on following the rules, it's miserable. And I know that because I've done it. And I still catch myself doing that from time to time. See, for me, when I put on a mask and fake or pretend or pose, I'm trying to earn approval, Uh, maybe from God, maybe from you, like I'm a recovering people pleaser. Um, There's part of me that just wants everybody to like me, to be happy with me, to think that I always know what to do. And so... When I fail, which I often do, when I don't meet someone's expectations, I I sometimes, where I go with that is, uh, one place I go is I'll get real angry about that, which is really just a defense mechanism for what's really down deep inside. So I'll use anger to deflect. Or I just get wrapped around with anxiety and fear. Fear, fear that people will start gossiping about me. Fear fear, Fear that I will lose others' respect fear that i'm not good enough that i'm not that i'm not kind enough that i am not enough or that i'm not right enough not 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 a good enough leader or pastor or father or a good enough husband so when that stuff starts kicking in it's all triggered from shame i don't want to be seen as a failure and shame kicks in and shame shames this feeling that i am defective that there is something uniquely and terribly wrong with me, with who I am, with who I am. See, guilt's about what I've done, which can be an appropriate response. Shame is, is that I am what is wrong. And when we get into that place, you know, we can't last too long in that kind of pressure and tension before we just feel that shame and we got to do something about it. And there are choices about how we can handle our shame. Um, we could take it to God. We could do that. Or we could wear a mask. I mean, I can take it to God. I really could come with my shame to God, my fear, my anger, my anxiety. I could go to him and step in the light of what is real and true. I could confess if I have done something wrong, and then I could receive from him um, reminders of who he says that I am. Like, does God see me as a a failure, a loser, or a fake? Like, how does God see me? That's one option, and that option, by the way, is a huge part of living in the the room of grace. It's, it's, It's living in the light of God. But another option that I'm really well versed at is to hide, to live in the dark, to fake it, to pretend and pose to wear a mask. And I can wear the mask. I can wear the mask of super pastor. I can wear the mask of all-knowing leader. Uh, I can wear the mask of perfect parent. Um, just take a minute here and turn to the person next to you. And, and, and just what are some other masks that people wear? Just, just take a minute here and, and kind of what are masks that you see people wear? Go ahead. Talk amongst yourselves. All right, give me some. Uh, what are some masks? Just just yell out something. Dutiful daughter, that's a mask. It is a pressured one. Perfect mom, yep. Happy, yep, I'm happy. What else back here? Everything's perfect, I'm fine, I'm doing fine. How you doing? Fine, I'm fine, we're all fine. You're fine? I'm fine. What else we got over here? Holier than thou. You kind of have to say that with the right voice. Holier than thou, right? That needs a little Bible Belt accent. Um. Fixer. That's a good mask. I'm a fixer. Anybody else? I'm successful. That's a wonderful mask. It's one that we put on. And, And some people might say, hey, come on, what's the big deal, Doug? Why not wear a mask? Well, here's why. The cost of living behind a mask is horrific. Because from behind a mask, my friends, no one knows the real me. They only get to know the me that I pretend to be. And so when I wear a mask... If I'm even getting love, only my mask receives love. Only my mask. They don't know me. They're just loving what they see in the mask. People might even admire or respect my mask, but they can never know me. See, as long as we're living behind a mask, any mask, we cannot be loved, and we cannot be. We are not able to receive real, authentic love. And our soul feels it, and so in our desperation to be loved... We rush out to fashion more masks. We're hoping that the next mask will will give us what we're longing for, to be known, loved, accepted, to be trusted. See, we human beings are really good at this mask wearing. It's it's been a part of the human story from the very beginning. We look at this story frequently. The Garden of Eden, the enemy comes to tempt the woman Eve. Eve, he says, eat this fruit. God's, God's holding out on you. Genesis 3, verse 6 The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, by the way, side by side. He wasn't wandering somewhere else. He watched it all go down. He was silent and passive, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, um yeah yeah the woman that you put here with me, right? She gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. That line from Adam, I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. Huh. John Lynch says on on that day when this happened, Adam in- initiates a horrible legacy. This is the first time that a man looks over his shoulder. It's the first time you see a man with his eyes darting. It's the first time a man covers and it ripples out to us see when you or I get afraid or embarrassed exposed or something's done by you or to you convincing you that you're not enough that you don't match up then you and I we hide see none of us wants to be seen as a failure so we put on a mask really quick we put on a mask or a fig leaf our false self our poser we put that on because we want to pretend that we are smarter than we are, that we're better than we are, that we're more together than we are. We start to believe I'm unfit, I'm unlovable, I'm, un- I- I'm naked, and no one must know. So I have to ask myself with enough reasons to be loved. I have to hide my stuff so people will accept me. I'm going to have to brag and put others down. I'll have to act healthier or posture or bluff or keep a smile on or avoid correction. I'm going to have to justify. I'm going to have to rationalize. And above all else, I'm going to have to hide the real me. And that's the shame kicking in. And in our shame, we put this pressure on ourselves too because we get tired of that and we're like, all right, fine, Doug, don't be a whiner. Fix yourself, try harder, do more, do better. Don't have so many problems. Like, watch over your shoulder and and get better in a hurry. And if you can't, then bluff like you are because you are constantly on trial. And if you want good things to happen in your life, you're gonna have to figure out how to look like you have your act together, Doug. And so we develop a mask. And sadly, again, we are living in a mask uh, we're, we're living in the dark whenever we wear a mask. See, especially when we see that we have blown it, that we've sinned, we believe this huge lie that helps us run to that mask like Adam did. We, we think that we have to hide behind our mask because our sin problem, it's just too shameful for others to be able to see. And so we think, well, well if I can hide it, sew together a fig leaf, wear a mask, then maybe no one will know what a mess I am. So I hide behind a mask because my shame tells me that there's no solution to me. Like there's something uniquely and terribly wrong about me, and the cross of Jesus that saved me is not enough to solve me, says John Lynch. It's like, yeah, sure, I I believe, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna get into heaven. Thanks, God. I'm I'm thankful. I'm grateful. Thank you, Jesus, that, that I get to go to heaven when I die. But God, you don't even really understand, I don't think, because I'm uniquely bizarre. I'm uniquely flawed and sick and broken. And when we believe that, we don't trust that same cross that saved us to solve us. And so then we think, well, now it's up to me. I'm going to have to manage my own sin. Sin management, by the way, right? You know what that's like? You ever been to the, the state fair or, or county fair and they've got that whack-a-mole game? You know? Anybody seen this game? Right? There's the, the mallets, right? You, you, the whack-a-mole deal. You take the, the mallet and you smack the moles as they pop up and down. Yeah, sin management, it's, that's like an elaborate game of whack-a-mole. Moles pop out of holes and you whack them with a the mallet and you score points by how many moles you can whack in a certain amount of time. And you start playing this game, and you think you're doing pretty good at first, but then the game speeds up, right? The game speeds up, we think we've fixed a behavior, and then four more critters pop out. Eventually, we spend all our time whacking moles, um, and apologies to all my friends who are counselors, but, but therapists put their, fr- their kids through college teaching us tricks on how to hit those pesky rodents harder, right? And as much as I believe in counseling and therapy, and I think it's very important in our development from time to time, no behavioral mallet can actually smash the lie that causes the shame, that that triggers our cycle, that lie that triggers the mole in the first place. So we give up on that, we hide, we fake, we pose, we wear a mask. But friends, there is a different way. There's a different way to live we don't have to live that way. We can live in the light. We can walk in the light of what God says is true and real about me and about you. And, you know, so often when I think about this idea of living in the light or walking in the light, I think about, oh, no, the, the light, if I'm in the light, it's going to expose my sin. That's all I think about, right? And it's true. Again, the, the light does expose. But even that is grace when it shows something that I need to take care of or, or change it helps me to see that so I can change direction. So the light, even in those hard times, is good. But not only does it reveal my, you know, center places I need change, the light also helps me to see the good things around me so that I can choose the good stuff. The light helps me to, to see the truth so I can believe it. The light helps me to know what is good and true so I can take off my mask, I can come out of hiding. And in the light of Christ, with my mask removed... I might actually begin to believe the truth of how God actually sees me. Now, let's spend a moment on this. How does God actually see you and me? So often, um, and there's so much we could choose from here. I'm just going to narrow it down to one thing that I want to kind of hit on. But there are so many things that are different. When you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to him and you want to follow Jesus, he changes you. Like the moment that you put your hope, your trust in Jesus, you are, according to Scripture, you are made new. Like you don't just get a ticket to heaven when you die. No, 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 you get a whole new identity. Who you are is instantly changed. It's almost like, you know, magic. It's bang, it happens. See, when you first trust Jesus with your life, you become, according to Scripture, you become a saint. Now, takes time to mature into that reality, but that is the truest thing about you. You are no longer identified as sinner. You are, according to scripture, a saint. And I want to poke at this one for just a little bit. Can I maybe even mess with some of our, you know, deeply held, biblical-sounding beliefs? Is that okay? Thank you, Dalton. I got one. Is Is there anybody second that, second the motion? Okay. And I know here I'm treading on some tender territory, because this stuff is all over Christian culture, and and lots of us say this line without really even thinking. But here's the lie that I want to poke at, and the lie is this, that Christians are still just sinners. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. Again, it's going to take time for us to mature into that, but this is what the New Testament teaches. But it sounds really pious, it sounds really humble, I think, when we say, I am a sinner... And the truth is, since I sin a lot, there's plenty of evidence that would seem to indicate that, yep, that guy there, he's still a sinner, right? But let's look at Scripture as our lens for truth. And there is no place in Scripture where the people of God are collectively called sinners, and there is no instance in the New Testament where a believer, a Christian, is called a sinner or referred to as a sinner, now, some of you that know your Bible are r- ripping through your Rolodex here real quick here. and um, There is one place, it's close, but there's a place where the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Timothy 1.15 refers to himself as the chief of sinners, right? We know that one. And so people will quote, well, even the Apostle Paul was the chief of sinners. But you have to read Scripture in context. Remember, Dwayne used to tell us, those of you that are here, read your Bible, right? Read your Bible. Read the whole thing, not just the verse. Don't get versitis and pick and... J- read the whole thing. And when we read the whole... Passage there, Paul is not talking about his current standing. He's talking about his old life. He's talking about his life as a blasphemer, as a persecutor of the church, as a Pharisee, as a man who had trusted in his religion and fervor to trying to earn him favor with God. And he says, "Formerly, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man when he tried to live apart from Jesus. But then when and and, and that's when he called himself a chief of sinners. He's looking back at all that stuff. That's when he was the chief of sinners." He's not calling him the chief of sinners, himself the chief of sinners now. No, he's talking about his former life apart from Jesus. Now, Paul says all over scripture, we are saints. And again, no place in the New Testament are any of God's people called sinners. And even if it was just that one and we thought we could grab onto that and call ourselves sinners, there are 63 places in the New Testament where we are called saints. There's actually 216 variations, saint, child of God, son, daughter, chosen, loved. I mean, so why would we opt for that as our identity, right? So your identity is not I am a sinner, it is I am a saint. And of course, again, even though I'm saying this and putting this in front of us, this doesn't mean that Christians don't sin, right? We do sin. In fact, if you know, or if you want to read Romans 7 this week, Paul laments the fact that he still sins. He does the thing that he doesn't want to do. And his entire Christian life and ours is sometimes a struggle between the new self, the saint, the child of God, and the old self, which the Bible calls the flesh. And the flesh, often times, oftentimes, the flesh wins out. Anybody besides me where the flesh still wins out, even though you're a follower of Jesus? the rest of you are sanctified. Holy cow. Wow. it's amazing. But here's what's interesting. Like, he even calls himself a wretched man because it's such a struggle. Even when Paul talks about that in Romans 7, as he diagnoses his own law-breaking, he concludes that, that, that whenever he sins, it's not the real him that's doing it. He actually says in verse 17 of Romans 7, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And then in verse 20, he says... Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, and he says elsewhere, in my flesh. Now, don't misunderstand this. Paul's not trying to play a little shuffle shell game with us and have some excuse and say, well, so I'm not guilty of these sins. It's not like I actually did it. It doesn't even count. Um, He's not trying to do that. He's lamenting his sin, his brokenness, but even as he does it, he makes it clear that this is not the new Paul, the saint. That's sinning. This is the old Paul, the flesh that hangs in there. And so in that sense, he's saying that, that when he sins, it's not his true self, right? Paul knows that he's a saint. That's the truest thing about him. That's the truest thing about you and me as well. Like, we're not naive and think that, you know, well, listen, Christians don't actually sin anymore. No, no, Paul knew that. In fact, most of his letters in, in, that make up our New Testament... Most of them talk about the sin of the Christians that he's trying to coach and help and disciple, right? But even that, when he's correcting them, he, he, he doesn't want them to think about their sin nature. He wants them to remember their new nature, not their old. They're saints who sometimes sin. They're not just sinners who maybe once in a while get it right. So when our true identities are understood biblically, it actually, actually helps affect the way that we view and respond to our sins as well. So, what I'm getting at with this piece here is that maybe we might think the most humble way for us to own up to the damage of our sin is to think of ourselves in the category of, I'm a sinner. Oh, I'm just a wretched sinner. But, friends, that can actually have the opposite effect. It's not going to drive us away from sin. Ultimately, we start to think of ourselves as a sinner. That's my identity. And when we see it that way, we think, well, sinning's inevitable, and so it's just a result of who I am. Sure, I wish I didn't sin, but I'm a sinner that's just what sinners do. But when we take our focus off of that and we start to see ourselves as saints, then we start to see sin in a whole new light. Like Paul said in Romans 7, oh this isn't the true me. This isn't the true me. So again friends, you might sin, but your identity is not a sinner. According to the New Testament, your identity is saint. That is the truest thing about you. You are a saint. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. That is how God sees you all the time. Even on my worst day, God's not going to leave me or forsake me or be embarrassed or ashamed of me. I belong to Jesus. He belongs to me. He lives in me. And Father God is very delighted in me and in you. See, it's so important for us to understand and begin to see how God actually sees us and how he treats us and declares us to be. Like, some of us think, well, fine, I'm saved, but, you know, God doesn't really like me that much, you know? Like, God saved me, but he's not super happy about it, you know? It's like God was hanging out on the day that we got saved, you know, and he's looking around, and my heart gets drawn to Jesus. I decide I'm going to pray to receive him. And we imagine God being like, no, 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 not that one. No, no, not Doug. I don't like that one, right? Oh, no, he's going to pray the prayer. Don't pray the, dogs. oh, do Ah, he prayed the prayer. Oh, <sighs> Fine, fine, fine. You get into heaven when you die, but we're going to put your mansion in the back row over by the heavenly dump, okay? <laughs> like God can barely stand us, okay? See, it's not, it's not like that at all, right? But I think sometimes if we dig deep enough in our own hearts about how does God really feel about me, we, we know how much we struggle. And so we think we're a disappointment to God and that maybe it even embarrasses him to call us his children. But listen, friends, God is crazy about you. He's crazy about you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not just putting up with you. you know, he's letting you into the family even though he'd rather not. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. See, I imagine that what it looks like when we turn to Jesus, in that moment when we finally trust him with our lives, so we pray a prayer, when we make a decision, our heart is drawn to him, and I think he's sitting on the edge of his seat with excitement. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Jesus is just on the edge of his seat. Hey, 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 Father, Holy, look over here. Come on. You watching this? You watching this? Hey, hey, you guys watching this? We've been wooing Doug his whole life, and today's his day. Today, Doug is going to trust in our love. Man, I love that kid. I can see him saying, I love that kid. He's a goof, but he's my goof. <laughs> and he says, Hey, hey, get ready, angels. Angels, get ready. You seeing this? Woo-hoo! Listen, listen now. Wow. And through my prayer, through my cry for help, through my surrender, I receive Jesus and I imagine him saying, Woohoo! Yes, yes. Now Doug is instantly moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Doug is forgiven. He's a child of God. And, and the greatest miracle of all, the greatest miracle of all, for those of you that know Doug anyway, is that I'm going to cl- declare now that Doug is a saint and that I live in him. And he says, okay, Father, holy angels, let's, let's, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. See, Jesus, my friends, is delighted with you. And when we realize that he is head over heels in love with you, everything changes. David David Benner says, God is simply giddy about you. He, he can't help loving you. And he loves you deeply, recklessly, and extravagantly, just as you are. Your sins don't surprise him, nor do they reduce in the slightest his love for you. Can we believe that? Can we live into this truest truth about truest truth about us? You are loved. You are a saint. Can we trust God enough then to take off our mask and live in the light? Because only in the light can others really love me and can I experience the love of those around me. Again, when I wear a mask, I I can't receive that love that I really desperately crave because people just see my mask. So I've got to let go of striving, impressing, posing. And I have to trust what Jesus has done for me and how he sees me now. Let me throw one more thing in here that I wasn't going to. But Galatians chapter three um, says, "Does the God who lavishly provides you with His presence, His Holy Spirit, working in you, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does He do these things because of your strenuous moral striving? Right? Because you're on the room of in the room of good intentions and you're trying to please God? Does He do it because of that, or because you trust Him?" to do those things in you, right? Is it it about me striving to be good enough and impress God? Or is it about trusting his work, what he's already done in me? See, when I trust his work, then I go, wow, I really trusted his work in me. I can take off my mask because I trust that I've really been changed. Really, as a believer in Jesus, we've been changed. We've received a brand new core identity, And so right away, we've been changed, and we get to mature into who we already are. I've used this uh, picture before, but I think it's so good. If if we brought a caterpillar to a biologist, and and we asked that biologist to describe the DNA of this caterpillar, he'd come back and say, listen, I know it looks like a caterpillar to you, but by every measurable scientific result, this is fully and completely a butterfly. That's the DNA of that caterpillar. It's like, whoa, whoa, wow, think about that. What a beautiful picture of how God has made us and then grows and matures us. God wired into this creature looking nothing like a butterfly, a perfectly complete butterfly identity. That caterpillar is already a butterfly in essence. One day it will mature, it will display the behavior and the attributes of a butterfly. See, the caterpillar matures into what is already true about it, and so it is with us. God gives you and I the DNA of godliness. He says we're saints, we are righteous. He says that you and I, we are Christ in us, and he just wants us to trust it. Friends, there's two places we can go with this. I think we, we go, wow, I want to lean into this grace this relationship with Jesus and live into who he says I am already. I think we want to own that in our own lives and begin to explore that because what we really want to do with this then is to not just have that for ourselves but to give it away to the people around us, to bless the people around us and go, hey, you, 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 you follow Jesus? Hey, here's what's the truest thing about you and remind each other and encourage each other Right? Could we do that in our own lives where we begin to trust Jesus with who he says we are? And then as a church, can we do that for one another and the people that come here? where as a community, a people, we see the other for who they are according to who God declares them to be. Especially when they don't see it or can't see it, right? Or they can't remember. Like, hey bro, listen, hey man, you are a saint, you're a good man. The truest thing about you is that you do have a good heart. I mean, what will begin to happen when we... Believe that for ourselves and then live that out with others. And I think we need to do both at the same time. It's not, I'm going to get this all down myself and then start giving it away. No, 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 no. We do it at the same time. We take those truths, we encourage and remind each other of who we really are, especially when somebody blows it or is stuck in shame. Um, It makes me think of some of the guys that, that I hang out with. Um... We are very open with each other. There are no secrets. Um, We tell each other everything, which is a great protection. It's a living in the light thing to do, living in the light. And when one of my friends blows it or when I blow it, they'll call me. I'll call them. And uh, we hear their confession. We hear each other's confession. But rather than trying to help them knuckle down and try harder or shaming them, at some point we stop and go, hey, I just want you to remember you're a good man. We call them into who God says they are. You're a good man. And you may struggle with lust, but the truth about you is not that you're a lustful man. You're, you're just condemned. I remember a guy telling me not that long ago, listen, I'm just a, a lustful man. There's no hope for me. I'm always going to struggle with this. I'm never going to get it right. And, and I'm pretty sure my words bounced off of him as I reminded him, listen, the truest thing about you is not this struggle, it's not this sin. It's that you have been given a new heart by God. He lives in you. You can get free of that stuff because it never helps just to help somebody, you know, we're just gonna make sure, sure you feel guilty enough about your sin so you stop it and manage it better. Like, it just doesn't work. See, that's what we do, friends, now listen, when somebody blows it really badly, there's a mess to clean up. <laughs> They're going to have to talk to their, their wife maybe and, and, and get some help, get some counseling, work through some things. But the truth that they have to live in even as they go through a process of repentance is to remember who they truly are. Friends, this is walking in the light. Walking in the light where God is light. Him, in him there is no darkness so we can live unmasked true-faced, open with our own junk, but open to recognize who you and I truly are according to who the light declares us to be. So rem- imagine, friends, as we wrap up, but just imagine being a place so safe where, as brothers and sisters, we can know the best and the worst about each other, and instead of rejecting or pressuring or guilting or shaming, we give each other grace we lead each other to repentance and freedom. No matter how many times somebody blows it, we remind them of what is really true about them. So there can be no hiding, no need to wear a mask, but we become a community fully living in the light. Taylor and Tony, will you two come? Friends, to have the courage to do this, we have to remember we are not slaves to fear. We are not slaves at all. We don't have to give in to fear. We are children of God. We are deeply loved. Slaves and people that are driven by performance and fear, they slip into mask wearing. They do. But Galatians chapter 4 said, God sent Jesus to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so he could adopt us as his own children. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. And so now you are no longer slave, but God's own child. So friends, you can come out of hiding. You can come out of hiding. You can come out of the dark. You can be freed to take off your mask. You can risk living in the light because you are no longer a slave to fear. That's not who you are. You don't have to live that way. See, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. So you're a child of God. You can step into his love, And let that drive away the fear. So friends, will you begin to dare to put aside fear to take off your mask so that you can allow us to see the true you and love the true you, that you are a child of God. So as we sing this song, let's declare that truth. Let's let it sink deep into our hearts as we close this morning. in fact, as we sing this song, As we sing this song, put yourself in a posture of receiving. Um, You might even sit with your hands palms up or raised palms up and just focus in on receiving this truth about who you are.